Hi, welcome to VMRA Healing. This is the podcast that delves into every aspect of well-being, from spiritual and mental health to physical and financial wellness. Join us on a journey of exploring and to discover the interconnected nature of these essential elements, offering insights, expert interviews, and practical tips to balance in your life. So get ready to elevate your understanding of health and embrace a holistic approach and nourishes that not just your body, but also your mind, spirit, and wallets. Hi, welcome to VMRA Healing. I am your host, Angie Schultz. Today, I have public speaker and author, Anthea McCartan. Hi, Anthea. Hi there. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, uh, so I'm a Christian, first of all. Um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I'm married, a qualified counsellor. I now facilitate workshops and they're aimed at both survivors and those who are working with survivors. Have children, two children, adults now in their 20s. That's a very long story condensed into a few seconds, but that's me. So you actually wrote a memoir called How Childhood Sexual Abuse Almost Stole My Sanity and How I Overcame My Past. And it's currently free on Kindle in the show notes. You guys can check it out. It's definitely a quick, good read. I read it last night, incomplete. So what is the message you hope that people will get from reading your memoir? I think the main message when I was... Look, before I even began writing, when I was thinking about writing my story, the main motivation behind it was just giving that message of hope because I remember how I used to feel when I was in the midst of that darkness, living with trauma. I just felt so lonely, isolated, but also hopeless. I just felt like that was my lot. That was my story and there wasn't going to be any healing, any future. When I was in the midst of that, I couldn't envisage healing. I couldn't see beyond. And it was a very scary place to be. And when I was thinking about writing my story, that's that was my motivation. I just want to share hope that healing is an option and it is possible. So what was the catalyst for deciding to write your memoir? Um, So I had a breakdown when I was 30. I spent four years in and out of hospital or mental health ward. And then after those four years, I began to feel better, what I believed to be better. Um, I I think the the better word to use would be stable. (laughs) You know, it was the most stable that I had felt ever but for me that was a huge progress what I didn't understand was that I still had a lot of healing to do sort of a lot of learning um about myself a lot of growth there was a lot to to come but I just wasn't aware of that at the time so I remember sitting at my in-laws house with my laptop and typing away and the writing was more a cathartic process. It was more a, like a validating process. So I actually closed the laptop and didn't do any more writing for a few years. So you mentioned 
that there is a ripple effect to childhood trauma. Like you basically write about your childhood trauma, um, yeah. but you mentioned that there's a ripple effect. Can you describe what you mean by there's a ripple effect to childhood trauma? My goodness, it's 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 uh, when we our survivors speak about the ripple effects of abuse, it is huge, especially when you're looking at the effects that it has on you as a as an individual. You know, in the sense that you you lose your sense of identity and the abuse started when I was around the age of six or seven so my identity before that was very much one of being carefree and and freedom and fun and happy and joy and all of that um but then when you're abused that that all goes and your identity becomes something entirely different and for me it was one of low self-worth low self-esteem fear um rejection abandonment that that was my my uh value system that's who i believed i was i was all of those things um so the ripple effects on yourself is one thing but then the ripple effects externally when you're looking at family members so as my grandfather so the ripple effects on my parents on my siblings extended family um ripple effects on the relationships with those individuals it's it's fast um yeah so what was your original question what were the ripple effects yeah so your area in, in a nutshell questions. yeah in a nutshell that's they were the ripple effects um but it, it goes far beyond that there's so it's it, your whole world changes everything yeah, you, you bullied at school because there was a vulnerability in me that believed that bullies um, detected, and I was an easy target. So that's another ripple effect. Um, a consequence of that was low grades. Um, I left school with barely any qualification. So yeah, they just it just it really does go on. It really changes your whole life, every area, every aspect. One of the things that I really loved about your book is the very first line. And it says, I didn't want my life to end. I just wanted the pain to end. And I think a lot of people can really relate to that. Do you mind sharing what caused you to say that? Yeah, so I took a choice. I had a choice when I was in the midst of despair um, that I either end my life or I just continue living in the despair. And what I didn't realise, I didn't have enough self-knowledge or self-awareness at that time to realise that it wasn't that I wanted my life to end. I wanted the pain to end. And through therapy, a really good therapist, she really freed me from the shame of, because there was a lot of judgment. Again, the ripple effects from family and friends. But you have so much, you know, you have two lovely children, a wonderful husband, a job, you know, some people even went on further to say, you go on lovely holidays, you have a lovely car, you have so much going for you. So it 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 really was about wanting the pain to end rather than my life to end. Because even I was able to acknowledge that people looking in on my life, it looked good. And I knew that. I knew I had a wonderful husband and two lovely children and everything going for me. But you cannot, when you're living with trauma... You cannot see beyond that. I talked to Dr. Mark McNear last week, and he talked a lot about the difference between shame and guilt. And I think a lot of people don't realize what shame is and how he explained it was guilt is feeling bad about something that you did, whereas shame is feeling bad about who you are. And oftentimes what we feel shame about has nothing to do with 
anything that we did, it usually has something to do with what happened to us. And um, I just thought that was a really good description. I also, one of the things I really appreciate about your book too, is it talks, uh, freedom seems to be a huge theme in your book, feeling free. Can you define what freedom was to you and how you achieved that? Gosh, that's a really big question. Yeah. I mean, I can speak about the here and now and what freedom looks like for me now, but it's very different to how freedom, how I envisaged freedom to be when, one, when I was broken, but two, when I was working through the healing process. Healing now for me is is wonderful. Um, I learned to ride a motorcycle <laughs> five years ago. And that for me, it's not, I mean, yes, the experience of riding a motorcycle is, is awesome. But when I go back five years ago, even to contemplate, right, I want to learn to ride a motorcycle. That I mean, in the UK, it's quite a lengthy process. We have to do a CBT, that's for two years. We have to do a theory test, and then we have to do um, a direct access course, which has a mod one and a mod two. It's it's not an easy process to learn over here and get your full license. And I knew that. And when we, you know, we earlier we were talking about the ripple effects, and we we're talking about self belief and self confidence, and even self worth. Am I worth this? this fun factor or element in my life you know I've got so many other responsibilities and the cost and everything so I really had to take myself back to all the work that I've done I am worth this um, and I can do this but the uh, the beliefs the old belief system is always there you know I think we ask the wrong question sometimes many people ask me clients and people who work with survivors you know how do you know when you're healed it's not so much about I'm healed now it's an ongoing process every day we are always healing and working through things and when things like this come up where right I want to gain full motorcycle license I had to quieten not just quieten but turn the volume off to all those old negative automatic thoughts of I'm not worthy of this or I won't be able to do it. I will fail. You know, my husband, he, I'm, I'm so blessed. You know, he offered to pay for it all. And then if I fail, it's a waste of all that money. So I had to turn off those voices from the past and um, remind myself of all the work that I'd done. <laughs> so that's how freedom looks for me now. Whereas when I was still living with the trauma, freedom was part of the healing um, and it, for me, it just meant free from the pain, free from the torment. What were some of the things that you chose to do to help you achieve that healing? I know you're not, you will never fully be healed until the day you die. You'll not Absolutely. fully be healed. So the first thing I did after sort of the, the four years of being in and out of hospital, mental health ward, I, um, again, I was turning off the volume to those, those old voices from the past. And I, and decided to qualify as a counsellor. So that was four years of training. Um, and actually those four years, I did so much healing work. Um, although the therapy that I'd had previously was, was really good in um, validate, validating my experiences, acknowledging that they had happened, you know, the therapy helped me work through anger and things like that. Therapy uh, or qualifying as a therapist, those four years, there was a lot of self-awareness work 
and we really had to pull ourselves apart and really look at our behaviours and our thought processes, who we were in our interpersonal relationships and things like that. So that was a really pain. Although I, the best four years of my life, I have to say, I really enjoyed those four years uh, qualifying, but it was so painful. Um, so I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, when I was broken, I the way I dealt with or responded like a trauma response if you like to things that happened in my marriage if something kicked off I would shut down and I would alienate my husband I wouldn't talk to him I'd go quiet and I'd go inside myself one day my husband my daughter and myself we were out having dinner and I can't really remember the conversation but there was a conversation that happened where I found it quite triggering because of one of the lines um, my daughter said, and although she didn't mean anything by it, um, my daughter is, oh, she's lovely. She's, there's always banter with my daughter, you know, um, and we have a really, really great relationship. But there was a line she said, well, we were talking about, yeah, church and God loving everybody, you know, even the unfavorables or who we deem to be unfavorable or we don't really gel with and, and and Millie said yes and God even loves the Antheas and I this was when I was training to be a therapist and it really was textbook I, re- I really recognized whereas before I wouldn't recognize my trauma responses I really recognized what had happened in that moment so I went I walked away from the table got myself a coffee and I thought to myself right how did I used to respond in these situations where I feel triggered, where old little Anthea feels triggered, you know, if she's not of value and, and, and little Anthea is unlovable. I know that's not true. And I know that's not what my daughter meant. So how do I deal with this? Now, this, is, this is, I'm finding a new me. This is a, a whole new territory that was alien to me of, of actually putting my adult head on and what I'd learned to put it into action rather than reacting, because it was the reacting that had got me into trouble many times in the past. So look, no, walk away, think, pause, and then I relax. So I went back to the table and I said to my husband and daughter, right, what, what you just said there, um, this isn't a an accusatory comment. I'm not saying this to point the finger. This is actually quite a happy moment for me because, and then I repeated to her what she said and how I would have responded to that and I said but now I'm realizing <laughs> you were just being you and it was banter if you like um and it was kind of a, cel- a celebratory moment of this feels awesome this is what healing feels like like I, I I'm not gonna send you to Coventry I'm not gonna sulk so yeah that was even now, look, you can see it just makes me smile just remembering that day. And just that was freeing. You know, we were talking about that word freedom. That felt freeing to be free from the old self. That's so awesome. Another thing I noticed that was a big theme in your book was you often talk about loving little Anthea. What what type of work did you have to do to learn to love her? And what did when did you recognize that you needed to love her? That's a really uh, powerful question because... One example that I use quite frequently is when I was writing my book, 
And we did, when we were training, there was so much in a child work that we did, theoretically, you know, in theory, I had the knowledge there, but I hadn't made that connection with little Anthea, although I knew and understood in a child work, I hadn't personally made that connection with her. And I was writing a book with my um, ghostwriter, Marnie, and I knew that I had to do some research. So I got all the old family videos out and uh, there was one particular bit on there that used to make me cringe. And it's where we're at the park with my parents, my nan and my siblings. And I'm doing cartwheels and I'm doing the usual trying to get attention and validation. And I was like, Daddy, watch me, watch me, because he had he used to work for a company called Radio Rental. So he was quite lucky and had a video camera it was back in the 80s massive thing it was um but anyway he was recording all of us but yeah my, my insecurities and you know that old message of I'm not lovable and not worth being filmed daddy daddy watch me watch me and and it used to make me cringe every time I watched it and anyway I, I put the the videotape in the machine and started watching it again and I was on my own and I just cried for the first time. I felt empathy for little Anthea. I felt compassion. Um, and there's a friend of mine, she's a therapist as well. And uh, I would liken it to her analogy where she said she would literally picture having her little self on her lap and giving her little self a hug. And that's why I was crying that day because that's in that moment that's what I was doing instead of feeling repulsed by because when I looked at this Lanthia all I saw was ugliness and pain and uh, someone who was annoying irritable um somebody that was yeah, just annoying to everybody else as well, <laughs> as well as me finding her annoying when I was watching her and I and that just switched it flipped to oh god I love you you poor thing it was I not in a condescending way, but it was, again, a freeing moment where, right, now I can start doing some real work or together. We can start doing some real work together. That's beautiful. That, that was a turning um, point, yeah. So you had described your diagnosis, I don't know if it was formal or informal, but as complex trauma. Do you mind describing what complex trauma is and how um, it affects someone, specifically you or people in general? yeah so when I was in hospital and I diagnosed me I remember the the first day um I was admitted and they actually asked me why do you think you're here and I was very flippant in my response which was well I went through a list of uh things that had happened to us that year as a family which was a car accident a really uh nasty car accident in Austria I'd made my best friend's wedding cake. There was all sorts of things that were going on. And I really genuinely believed that everything had just got on top of me and I broke. Um, and they said, well, they're all triggers, but there's something else. <laughs> and very flippantly, I just said, well, I shrugged my shoulders and it was, well, I was abused as a kid. I had no idea what I had been living with. So that's when they diagnosed me. Um, and also um, they diagnosed me with um, obsessive compulsive thoughts um, because the religion and the trauma together was not 
compatible at that time. Um, any anyone listening who has been raised in any type of faith really would understand that religion and the teachings can actually magnify the shame that um, you're living with as a survivor of abuse. There's all that talk about around grace and forgiveness. And I couldn't even forgive myself um, for much of what had happened. I blamed myself for not being able to say no or not being able to push him off or not reporting it sooner or and I had to forgive myself. So when you're looking at complex drama, you know, when we were talking about the ripple effects and it, it's just such a vast topic. Um, but that was my first experience and moment of, you know, being sat in that hospital room of realising that I was a victim of complex trauma. And you talked a little bit about religiosity. I think it's the same as scrupulosity here. I think it's a UK, United States difference. But one of the things that you had talked about is because your family, it's not that they didn't take you seriously. It's that you guys were so immersed in church culture and religion. And you mentioned that they had a very naive interpretation of what God's forgiveness is. Do you mind sharing that? Because I have a feeling so many people can relate to that because I think so many people you know, they think they just need to forgive everybody and what, and they don't have an idea of what forgiveness actually truly is. And it's not necessarily the, you may stay in my life, even though you did all these terrible things because I forgive you. Um, Do you mind just sharing the impact of that and your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. The impact of that was huge, to be honest. So I, when I had the breakdown at age 30, not too long after that, my grandfather and decided he was very manipulative and always coming out with lies but he decided that he wanted to become a Christian but not only become a Christian but attend my church which was my safe space and where I was still broken I was unable although uh, my mum and the then church ministers asked me would this be okay the broken me who didn't have a voice said yeah of course people pleasing Yeah, yeah, of course, I'll be fine. So not only had I lived the trauma of what happened in my childhood, but then I had to continually be re-triggered by him being in my life. Obviously, throughout my whole childhood, you don't have a choice. You're a child, so it's continual triggers of what had happened. And then the breakdown. He did even come and visit me in hospital, the mental health ward, um, and then attended. So I had no freedom from him and from the memories of what happened. Um, and then at that time, what was also being um, said to me was that in order for you, or you'll understand this, um, one of the church teachings is that if we don't forgive others, then God can't forgive us. And as a victim of abuse, I I knew that I just could not find it within me to forgive him um, as, as hard as I tried, which magnified the shame again. Whatever um, way I looked in, in those years, there was shame, different aspects of it, but there was always shame in different contexts. But So that was one. And then when I began therapy outside of hospital, 
there was a line that my therapist said, which began the whole different thought process of, is he worth forgiveness? And the question she asked me was, does he deserve the title granddad? Because up until that point, I was still calling him granddad and he was still in my life. It, I've, I've got to be honest, it took me years to process that real uh, message behind forgiveness, to process what forgiveness really meant, to process what forgiveness looked like during my healing process. Um, but what I now understand and what I teach or bring to the table when I'm talking to survivors and people working with survivors is that one of the most harmful things we can do is to tell um, a victim survivor that they have to forgive their perpetrator or abuser if they are to heal or find healing. And I think that's really damaging, a very damaging message um, because it definitely damaged me um, because I knew I could not forgive him. Um, and there's one, there's a scripture that many Christians seem to forget. <laughs> um, it's in, oh gosh, Luke 17, um, where it's, I wish I'd had it in front of me now, but it's something like, um, if they are repentant, so whoever's, whoever's in your life that's hurt you, if they are truly sorry. And as we know, statistically, abusers rarely are sorry and repentant and don't want to change and don't change. Um, so he, he was another freeing process for me, realising that actually I'm already on my healing journey and I've already worked through so much and processed much and I haven't forgiven him. So do I actually need to forgive him? And it wasn't so much that it's, you know, because people say they're talking about angerness and resentment and bitterness in your heart. And I didn't have any of those things. I wasn't angry. I'd gotten to the point where I'd let go of the hurt and I wasn't angry anymore. I was trying to think of the word indifferent. There really was no feeling. There was no attachment to him. There was no emotion there anymore. I'd, I'd been able to walk away, or as I word it sometimes, the crime scene. I'd been able to walk away from that without holding the angerness, bitterness and resentment that I used to, because I did used to be very angry um, and resent what I had been robbed of. But I'd gotten to the point where I was walking in healing and freedom and full acceptance of what had happened, but I hadn't forgiven him and that was okay. So, yeah, that's my my main message, really. I think, you know, if you're a professional working with victim survivors and especially if you're um, if from any faith, um, especially mine, Christianity, I, I, I know not every listener may agree with this, but it's and I'm not here to preach, but it's my experience. And that's what we're here to share. My experience with forgiveness is don't tell a survivor they have to forgive. I know one of the thing, one of the damaging things that I have heard in church is I've actually heard pastors say that there is no godly anger. So if you're feeling angry, you are sinning. And I have to admit that in my own journey of healing, 
I had to feel angry. It was because like I had told myself I could not be angry at these people. I had to forgive them, you know? And so I didn't, so anytime anger would arise, I would, I would squash it down and I was losing my voice. And it wasn't until I allowed myself to be angry and even at angry at people who are very healthy in my life. I had to be, I had to be able to be angry with them for things that do, because, you know, if you're in a relationship with anybody, no matter how great the person is, they're human, they're going to hurt you. And I think too often the church tells us not to be angry. And I think sometimes we do have to be angry in order to move on or to realize, you know, we have worth, we have a voice. And I think that's about not staying there is what it really is moving on. Yeah. It is being able to walk away and letting go of everything um, that was attached with that that chapter of your life. Um, and anger is for me. It yes, I I used to in personally speaking, I used to. My opinion of anger was it was something to be afraid of, um, because I didn't feel in control of those emotions. But I remember one day, it was the day I reported him to the police as an adult. Um, he'd said something like, she came on to me or she started it and something just snapped in me. And I was angry and there was no no control over that emotion. That, that was there. So to then shame somebody and say, that's wrong to be angry. <laughs> that was a normal response to to what had happened. Actually, I was able to turn that anger into something positive and that something positive was a moment of self-validation and say actually I have a voice now and I'm going to report you to the police and what you did was wrong um so I think that when we react to anger it can be quite harmful but when we take a moment and think about and there's a lot of energy that's running through our bodies when we're feeling angry but if we can stop pause and not react to things and situations and actually think about right how can I use this energy um for something positive a positive move forward step forward then anger can actually be a really good thing what would you say your turning point for your healing process was oh um there were so many turning points because there have been years of healing um years of having to process different things um, the list is endless, but to name one moment, I think it would have to be back to that moment I mentioned earlier when that therapist said to me, does he deserve the title granddad? Because up until that point, I I didn't exist. Um, I had no voice and I I wasn't even able to think for myself. But that was a that that was the first moment um and I was about 30 mid-30s where for the first time she was encouraging me to think for myself and yeah I would say that was the first significant turning point of many (laughs) good you had you had mentioned a few in your book you had a few notations about you know little words of wisdom and one of the things you talked about is watching for signs in your children their behavior changing the relationships like unusual relationships with other people what are some yeah. red flags that you would like parents to know and to look out for i think this is a really important thing to cover because when you look statistically over 90% of uh, victims of childhood 
abuse know their abuser. Um, and one of the things that my parents said that looking, although they couldn't see the red flags at the time, because this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, when this topic was not discussed, um, it, it was brushed under the carpet everywhere. Um, but they, they, they described how, looking back now, they can see the red flags. Now they're more informed and they know the subject. They, so things like, before I was six, they said, you know, you were, you were happy, you were confident. When you had your first day at school, you went and you didn't even look back. You were so excited. Um, I had lots of friends and then there was a moment that they remember too where I all of a sudden became introverted, very shy, had no confidence, no friends. So when you're looking or talking about signs, they're signs that they're not... It doesn't necessarily mean that your child has been abused, but there are signs to look out for if they are. And um, yeah, like I said, just one minute they're extroverted and then all of a sudden introverted and shy and no friends, uh, scared to see certain people. If one minute they're happy to see that person and then they're scared and they don't want to go near them. They sound very basic don't they those signs but sometimes we just miss them and we'll brush it off as something innocent or something different but we as parents I think it's our responsibility responsibility to be mindful of um changes in our children's behaviors um as a as a, a little individual but but also how they are with other people around them I know a lot of that has to do with grooming. Can you describe what grooming is and what to be watching out for? Yeah, so in my situation, the grooming was I have three siblings, but I was my grandfather's favourite, inverted commas, and I would receive at Christmases or birthdays bigger gifts, better gifts, and my siblings would always, and this is another red flag, if you like, to look out for. They, their gifts were significantly smaller or cheaper or didn't cost as much as mine. And then I would get extra pocket money. And I do um, describe all of this or go into detail on this in the book. Um, but I remember one situation where my grandparents were babysitting and he came up to the bedroom um, and the fear in that moment was um, indescribable, but he didn't do anything. But that time he just slipped 50p in my hand and went, Shh, don't tell your sisters. Um, so that's, that's one way he groomed me. And another way was just making me feel really special. And I think this is just one of the contributing factors to how or to explain why I struggled to break the bond and the tie with my grandfather, because he used to make me feel incredibly special because of the time that he wanted to spend with me. He would give me cuddles and not my siblings cuddles. He'd take me on fishing trips or take me to the shop for sweets. And when you're looking at grooming, that is what grooming looks like. 
you actually are working on another piece right now. It's called It Hurts to Heal. Do you mind describing mm-hmm. what that is and how you plan to use it for to help others? Yeah, I um, for in, in my early um, years of healing, I was quite frightened of it because in, in those first therapy sessions, it was looking at um, what had happened to me and acknowledging what had happened to me. Um, and that word victim held a very oppressive, uh, had a very oppressive connotation for me. Um, and it hurt um, to, to, to first acknowledge that, that I was a victim and to acknowledge what had happened. That was really painful um, because it made me feel powerless. It, it, it was like a trigger of, of how I felt powerless as a child. I again felt powerless as an adult. Um, that hurt. Um, and then when you get deeper into therapy, I had a really great psychotherapist um, and we were looking at how the abuse had shaped me as an individual um, so we really were looking at those insecurities, uh, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, how um, it was affecting my relationships, how it was affecting my career, um, how it was affecting raising my children, how it was impacting the children themselves because they were being raised by a mum who was who was broken. And, and it was like putting on new glasses and, and seeing things for the first time. And, and what I was looking at in the mirror, metaphorically, was very hard. It, I, what I was seeing wasn't something pretty or beautiful. And when you're faced with all, with all of that, with all the ugliness, with all the shame, um, with who you are in that place of brokenness, um, you just want to look away, you know, you're automatically actually, it's just to flinch away because you just can't bear to look at it. Um, but then you're beginning to think about, right, okay, I don't like it, but I want to change and I know I don't want to stay in this place. I've got to, I've got to start becoming self-aware every day and really looking at what this brokenness is looking like, looking like in my daily life. So I had to very slowly, bit by bit, and it was baby steps, um, change how I was feeling about myself, um, my thought patterns, those negative automatic thoughts. So bringing that all into my consciousness, because up until that point, it had all been buried. I'd suppressed it all. It had been in the subconscious. So I had to, it was all buried. So you're literally digging it all out dragging it all out um and that word shame again oh gosh do I really react that way oh gosh did I really say that um did I really let you down here um right how can I change that so that hurt (laughs) that 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 whole process um was painful because I would have to revisit the same things over and over and over but the more we revisit and change the more those um changes become habits and you're not thinking about it so much yeah so that's why healing hurts it's it's a personality transplant there's actually a song out by i think it's called blue eyes 
it, it does have some strong language in it, but it says, you know, healing hurts sometimes. Well, it actually says healing something hurts sometimes. And yeah. the first time I heard that it was, it was so beautiful. And it said, healing is harder than a full-time or work harder than a full-time job. And I, when I was in my deepest moment, even though I do not like that type of language, I had to listen to that over and over because it was, yeah. it was so incredibly powerful to me to hear her, hear that song. And if you've never heard it, I would Google it, Oh, um, yeah. but it, it has strong language, but it also is very um, intentional, strong language yeah. too. Like, yeah. But I really appreciate that you've been on here. Um, but I do want to ask one last question. And what message would you like to give to others who have had similar backgrounds as you? It's There's a book, isn't there? Feel the fear and do it anyway. And healing is scary. You know, and we have an option. We can either avoid that and just continue in those old... The thing is, that who I was before I found healing... Although it was a dark place and a broken place, it was familiar and it was, I knew it and I felt comfortable with it. And even there was an element of safety. I knew that I would have to step out of my comfort zone and it was frightening. Um, so that's what I thought of that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, because you just have to feel it. There is no option, other option. You have to feel it and you have to walk through that fire. Yeah, just feel it and do it anyway. And it's what makes us all so awesome. Anyone who's listening who is a survivor of childhood abuse, uh, to get to that point where we've survived that. But what happened in our childhoods, we've survived it. So if we can survive that, then we can. We deserve this healing. We deserve yes. the future. We deserve but freedom. I like that. We deserve this healing. I like that a lot. Yeah. But thank you so much for being vulnerable on here and being vulnerable in your book. I really enjoyed your book. I finished it in two hours last night. <laughs> I was planning on just reading a couple out or a couple chapters and it was beautiful, really written. So I ended up reading the whole thing, but oh, thank you. <laughs> but thank you again so much for being on. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's really nice to chat. Thank you so much for listening until the end of our episode. I hope you join us next week. I love hearing from my listeners. So feel free to email me at vmrahealing at gmail.com. VMRA is spelled V-I-A-M-A-R-E, healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G. You can also check out our website at healingmindbodyspiritwithangie.com. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Please join me next week. God bless.